Chapter Eight of In the Line of Battle, edited by Walter Wood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: A Gunner at the Dardanelles. Next, I come to the Royal Artillery. By their constant vigilance, by their quick grasp of the key to every emergency, by their thundering good shooting, by hundreds of deeds of daring, they have earned the unstinted admiration of all their comrade services. That is the tribute which General Sir Ian Hamilton paid to the gunners in his dispatch, describing the operations in the Gallipoli Peninsula, a document which is the story of a noble failure. Little has been told of the doings of the artillery, but we can realise what they did from this narrative of Gunner John Evans, 92nd Battery, Royal Field Artillery, who was included in the vast number of soldiers who were invalided home through sickness. I was in India with my battery when the war broke out. I had been in the country for seven years, and much as I liked it, I thoroughly enjoyed my soldiering there. I wanted to be off to the front. But I was kept in India for six months, training men to fight the Germans, and so doing my bit in that way. Then I came to England, where my battery had a splendid time, because the people were so kind, and after that very pleasant change I was off to the Dardanelles, and went right into a fair hell of fighting. You can imagine a lot as a soldier, but no flight of fancy would ever have made you picture in your mind the things that actually happened. It is all over now, and some of us in hospital have time to think of the brave fellows who are resting in the peninsula. They could not do what they were set to do, because that was beyond the power of ordinary man. But they did more, I think, than any other troops in the world could have done. To any man who knows what the country and climate are like, and who saw the difficulties and endured the awful discomforts, it seems that almost miracles were performed, and of all the wonderful things none was more wonderful than the withdrawal from Gallipoli. We went straight into the business. There was no beating about the bush over the job. We got there to the famous Lancashire landing at W. Beach, and my battery was the first to land on Turkish soil. Looking back on the campaign makes you wonder that we ever got either in or out of Gallipoli. When our transport got near enough for us to begin our landing operations, we were treated to a fine view of the desperate fighting that was going on, to say nothing of being under fire ourselves from the Turkish guns, a proper preparation for the regular hell of fire that we were under when we actually landed ourselves. The Turks had opened fire on our transport from the Asiatic side as well as the European side, and what was happening to our own ship was happening to a whole fleet of transports and all sorts of other ships. There were warships bombarding the enemy's position, and the din altogether was enough to stagger even a long-service gunner who thought he knew what noise meant. This happened about half-past ten in the morning. At that time the Lancashire Fusiliers were making their magnificent attempt to land, and I shall never forget their pluck and the way they stuck to their deadly job. They were being conveyed ashore in lighters, and the Turks, we could distinctly see them over the edge of the cliff, not a hundred yards from the foreshore, were pouring in a terrible fire at close range. Shells, too, were dropping from the batteries at Achibaba, miles in the rear, with wonderful precision. The Fusiliers' lighters could not get close to the beach owing to the barbed wire entanglements which had been fixed in the water, so the men were ordered to get out and wade ashore. This they began to do, and it was one of the most awful jobs that a landing party ever undertook. 
I could see them quite well from our transport. Without a moment's hesitation the Lancashires clambered over the sides of the lighters and into the water they went, struggling to get ashore. It is hard enough to force your way through water at any time, put to that difficulty a heavy kit and rifle and ammunition, throw diabolical barbed wire in, and you will understand to some extent what it all meant. As these brave fellows threw themselves overboard, dozens of them were shot. A lot more were caught by the barbed wire, and as they were held helplessly, with flesh and clothing torn in their frantic efforts to get free, they were killed or wounded by the Turkish fire. It seemed impossible for any of the fusiliers to survive and get ashore, yet many forced their way through everything and landed on the beach, where they at once formed up roughly, and then, without the slightest hesitation, they charged up the face of the cliff, which looked to me almost as hard to scale as the side of a house. As they scrambled up the cliff, they were met by a more murderous fire than ever from rifles and machine-guns, and numbers were killed or wounded. It seemed to me that, for every man who reached the top, at least four were killed or maimed. I could see the bodies rolling down the cliffside on to the beach. It was only a little band of Lancashire fusiliers that managed to scramble and rush to the top of that terrific cliff, a few hundreds or so. They must have been exhausted, but their blood was fairly up, and with fixed bayonets they charged with such fury and success that the Turks were fairly taken aback and I could see them giving way before our boys' cold steel. Some of the Turks were throwing up their arms, and I could hear their shrill appeals for mercy. But the Fusiliers hadn't too much time to listen, after the awful experience they had just gone through. After they had been driven off, the Turks made a counter-attack, and the Fusiliers, being a mere handful, were forced back to the very edge of the cliff, and seemed in peril of going down it but even then they reformed and again rushed on the Turks with the bayonet and scattered them. Back again the Lancashires were driven, only to recover in the most amazing way, and charge with the bayonet for the third time. And this seemed to settle the Turks, who cleared off. While this thrilling fighting was going on, a sight that can never be forgotten by those who saw it, our brigade was getting ready to disembark. The infantry had had a hard enough business to get ashore, but ours was naturally a lot worse, for we had to tackle our guns and horses, as well as look after ourselves. There were lighters alongside the transport, and into each of these we got two guns and eight horses, not easy work at any time, but hard now, with such a rush on and shells dropping all around us. Some of the explosions caused havoc amongst the horses, and several shells dropped near our lighter but I am thankful to say that they were not near enough to do us much damage. We were towed as near to the shore as we could get, and then we began the uncommonly hard and long job of getting the guns and horses ashore. The lighters were bobbing up and down and ranging owing to the run of the sea, and this unsteadiness made it very difficult to get the guns and horses overboard. But every officer and man worked with a will, and we did it. We got them out of the lighter and on to a strange kind of roadway that had been made in the water by putting sandbags tightly down. These sandbags gave a fair lot, of course, but we could not have done anything without them, for the wheels would have sunk too deeply in the wet soft sand. When a gun was ready, from ten to sixteen horses were harnessed to it, and it took these and forty men on the drag ropes to get one gun over the sandbag road on to the beach. 
We did our best, we strained every nerve, we were experts at the work, yet it was evening before the battery was ready for action. By that time we had got the guns on the level of the top of the cliff, about forty yards from the edge, after tremendous efforts by horses and men. I never saw such manhandling, even in India. We had luck in the weather, for a heavy storm came on, and the rain fell in blinding sheets. This, with the darkness, when it came, enabled us to take up our position without the Turks knowing of the fact. Of course, while all this work of ours was going on, the infantry were screening us in front. A constant and confused sort of fighting was taking place, and our men were mixed up with the enemy in furious hand-to-hand -hand scraps. It was a regular bedlam, and so that nothing should be left in the way of trouble, we were soaked to the skin. But we were so absorbed in the fighting, and so keen to get to work ourselves, that we did not give a thought to the drenching. We longed to get into action, but were kept back by the mixing up of our own men with the Turks, which made it impossible for us to open fire, because we should have killed as many of our own men as Turks. We stood by till we knew that our infantry had driven the Turks well back, and then it was that the enemy got one of the biggest shocks of the day, for we simply let go at him with shrapnel at point-blank range. So well had we been handled by our officers that the first hint the Turks had of our presence was when we opened fire, and then the muzzles of our guns were almost in amongst them. During the first few minutes of that tremendous excitement we did not bother much about the gun drill-book. I, for instance, was loading, setting fuses, ranging and doing any other work that came to hand. Despite this there was nothing whatever to grumble about in the way the guns were being served. In the darkness we could not see what mischief we were doing, but we knew perfectly well that it must be enormous, because of the rapidity of our fire and the goodness of our shells. And when the daylight came we had proof, for ahead of us were piles of Turkish corpses, men who had been killed by our shrapnel. We went on firing till the Turks had been driven back in complete disorder. We kept the game up throughout the day, but the darkness prevented us from following the enemy's movements. We, of course, had no observation posts at that time, as there were no trenches available for the observation officers to get to know the results of our fire. After this promising start, things were fairly quiet till the small hours of the next morning, when the enemy counter-attacked with great fury. The Turks are rare good fighters, they knew the country, and they had German officers driving them on in the rear, brutes who shot them down without mercy time after time, as I saw with my own eyes. There were some native troops on our right front, and these were so hard-pressed that they were forced to give way. A staff officer who was at hand realized instantly the serious state of the situation, as the line was broken, and he called on some of the gunners in our brigade to fill the gap. About fifty of our men fell out at once. There were hundreds of rifles with fixed bayonets lying on the ground around us, and grabbing what they wanted of these, our men rushed up and joined in the fray, filling the gap and making good the broken line before the Turks could understand what was happening. It was a smart little affair, and the enemy was driven back and had to scuttle for shelter to his trenches, where he was left for the time being, for our troops were utterly exhausted and a rest was necessary. We were thankful for a bit of a break. It was not for long, but we took things fairly easily till just before midday, when another advance was ordered against Sedul Bar, 
a village of great tactical importance some hundreds of yards away on our right front our brigade was ordered to get ready for action by this time we were better off than we had been for we had established the necessary observation posts and so we were ready for anything that might happen at noon the order came to open fire and we fairly rained shells into the village hundreds of rounds of shrapnel to help the infantry in their advance the turks were just as ready as we were and they started a bombardment both from achi baba and the turkish forts on the asiatic side some of these shells were proper duds and they made us laugh it was not necessary to be told that they were made in germany for they dropped harmlessly into the ground without exploding but of course there were lots that did burst and do mischief many of these dropped on to the beach down below killing mules and causing losses amongst transport drivers and the men of the army service corps owing to the luck of war we had not many casualties in our own battery and the losses were nothing like what you would have expected from such a lot of firing from the turkish guns but we had some sad losses all the same our major was amongst the few who were killed that afternoon he was in an observation trench ahead and was struck by a piece of shell which burst just near him the news soon spread that he had been mortally wounded he was most popular with the men and as soon as they heard what had happened both officers and men rushed out to his post to do what they could for him but you can't do much for a dying man the major did not last long his last words were good luck boys tell my wife i died happy there wasn't a dry eye amongst the men who laid him to his last rest they say that misfortunes never come alone and it was all too true of us that day for in the evening the colonel and the adjutant were done to death through german treachery we heard but not till later that a german came along a piece of enemy trench close to the observation post where the two officers were the german shouted in quite good english all officers this way the colonel and the adjutant who did not suspect anything got out on to the parapet of the trench and instantly a hand grenade was thrown from an enemy trench quite close at hand it exploded and killed both of them that's the sort of dirty trick which the germans know so well how to play they have a born gift for it and that reminds me that the germans who were with the turkish forces were just as dirty and brutal in their methods as they are by all accounts on the western front looking through a pair of field glasses i have seen german officers during an attack by the turks follow them with revolvers in hand your german officer doesn't lead he drives having a precious regard for his carcass and no earthly sense of honour and i have seen them shoot turkish soldiers who have fallen because they have been shot in the leg or have stooped to pick up a rifle which had been dropped the german would be about a hundred yards in the rear and would run up and deliberately shoot the prostrate man i am talking now not from hearsay but of what i have seen with my own eyes and it does not help you to love the germans i once saw a german prisoner a fair specimen of the prussian bully he was a lieutenant knocked down a british sentry who had told him not to smoke in a part of the line where lights were prohibited it was lucky for the bully that a british captain came along at the moment or the fellow would have got the full force of the sentry's bayonet i heard turkish prisoners say that the german officers treated the turks with contempt and it was a marvel that the turks had not risen and slaughtered their so-called benefactors wholesale 
While on this point, I would like to say that as a fighter, the Turk is a gentleman. We would go for them hammer and tongs in the ordinary way of scrapping, but ten minutes after it was over, we would gladly shake hands with them, but we wouldn't do it with the Germans. The dirty trickery that killed our colonel and our adjutant made our brigade swear that they would never spare the Germans when they met them in the way of fighting. It was on the third day from the landing that we began the great advance, which was meant to sweep the Turks away from the peninsula, but which failed through lack of men and ammunition. On that day we moved our guns forward about three hundred yards, and took up a fresh position from which we could bombard the enemy with great advantage. We were in that place for a fortnight, and during that time the infantry had many a desperate shot at Achi Baba, which was the Turkish stronghold. There were many attacks and counter-attacks, without much apparent advantage to either side. But matters favoured the Turks, who had been strongly reinforced and had prepared very fine defensive positions. While we were here, our brigade lost a fair number of men, but of course the infantry suffered far more. I am proud to say that our battery was the nearest to the Turks, and was constantly in action. One night we had a report that the enemy was going to attack us in great force, and on the strength of the report we had to retire to a safer position. We withdrew, not without a lot of grousing among the boys, and when we reached our new point we were heavily bombarded, but no infantry attack followed, as we had been led to expect. There was a good deal more grousing next morning when we moved forward again, because the Turks began to shell us heavily as we went along the road. This showed how well informed they were as to our movements even since the previous evening, but luckily our losses amounted to only two or three horses. The next day the great retirement of the British forces began, and the whole of our infantry fell back about two miles, to a point which we had nicknamed Clapham Junction, because the two main roads in the peninsula joined there. The artillery did not retire, being supported on the right and in the rear by French troops and the heavy guns. Everybody knows now that if there had been enough men and ammunition, our infantry, instead of retiring, would have taken Achibaba and driven the Turks out of the peninsula. Let us hope that if we did not manage to do that, our tremendous losses were not in vain, and helped to spoil any plans for marching on Egypt and India. Early in June we started business again with the Turks, and that was when the great battle of Krithia took place. This fight lasted two days, but we did not make much headway, as the enemy had got big reinforcements and had prepared a defensive position of enormous strength. I had several narrow escapes from death during that great fight. During a lull I was standing behind a bank with two or three other men, watching the enemy's artillery shelling a water-cart some distance away. The cart was going along a road, and we were wondering whether it would get clear or be blown up. While I was doing that, a shell burst right over us, making a horrible noise, and peppering the air with pieces of shrapnel. I ducked my head instinctively, and so kept it on my shoulders. It was lucky for me that I did this, or I should have been killed, because the shell burst very low, so low that I got several shrapnel bullets through the back of my helmet, and the man nearest to me was seriously wounded by flying bits of metal. The third man received a good shaking up, but was otherwise unhurt. A day or two later I had an even narrower shave with death, one of those extraordinary bits of luck that are so common in a war like this that you take them almost as a matter of course. 
I wanted to be as comfortable as possible, and so I had started to make a dugout for myself. I was under fire, but I did not pay much attention to that. I soon found that the ground I was working on was in a bad and insanitary state, so I gave up the job, and took myself off, and began to try my luck at a place about fifty yards away. I had just got to work on the new pitch when a huge high explosive shell dropped plump on the ground where I had been digging. It burst with tremendous force, and I was pelted with flying clods of earth and got a proper good shaking. But beyond that I was not hurt. But my first pitch was simply shattered and if I had not cleared out I should have been blown to fragments, as I have seen many a fine chap blown in Gallipoli. One of the very worst of my experiences was one day when I went to visit a chum who was on duty at the beach. I called at his dugout, just as you might call for a chap at his home, and out he came, smiling, walking up to me to shake hands. Just at that moment a shell of the enemy dropped short. I was struck dumb with the shock. When I regained myself I looked for my chum, and a terrible sight met my gaze, for there he lay in little pieces. I felt right cut up, as I had soldiered with him for years in India, and I was going to visit his home if we had the luck to get through together. So you see we were so near but yet so far in a few seconds, and I am one of the lucky ones to be here to tell the tale. Out of the whole of the officers and men who came from India in my splendid battery, you could almost count those who are left on the fingers of your hands. Fighting and disease have taken nearly all of them. More than once I was nearly outed by snipers, but I managed to keep a whole skin. It must be said in all fairness that the Turkish snipers were both plucky and resourceful. Snipers were brought in who were found actually in our own lines and once I was astonished to see a young and pretty Turkish girl brought in as a prisoner. She was a sniper, and had been hanging about our lines for a fortnight. There was no doubt that she was responsible for the death of several good men. We were greatly interested in this young lady, who was sent off to Tenedos. These Turkish marksmen took every risk like good sportsmen, and we made their acquaintance right at the start for when we were carrying out our desperate landing, snipers were actually potting us from the beach, where they were covered with sand, so that it was almost impossible to see them. After that we got used to see snipers brought in who had painted themselves green to match the trees and foliage, and others had decked themselves out with branches. It was funny to see some of the beggars, and as they had played a straight game we could not bear them any ill-will. It was the Germans who did the dirty tricks. Now for a few words on how I left the Dardanelles. It was about July, when dysentery was at its worst, and quite half my battery were sick with it, all at the same time. It came to my turn to get it, and I was very bad for about three weeks. At last I could stand it no longer, for I could not work without suffering awful pain. It was like two pieces of sandpaper rubbing together in one's inside, with much vomiting. So I was forced to report sick to our doctor, who was a gentleman and a brave man. He was very kind to me, and did all in his power for my benefit, but it was no good. I had to go to hospital. I thought this would be at a place a few miles away, and I was glad at the prospect of being out of the firing, which was awful to a degree, and to get some quietness. But I found myself at a beach hospital, which was composed of tents and was always under fire. Several shells dropped in on us, causing much damage and loss in life and material. 
so I was pleased enough when I knew that I was to go on board a hospital ship. Gladder still when I knew that I was being carried to a place which was a little safer than Gallipoli, namely, dear old England. There was no room for us at two ports on the way home, but I didn't mind that. England was quite good enough for me. We had a fine though sad voyage. It did one good to see the smiles on the faces of the wounded. Though they were in great pain, they were cheered with the thought that they were leaving a hell on earth for a turn in heaven. That was the bright side of the case. The dark side was that our engines were continually stopped while one of our dear comrades was committed to the deep, where he could get the rest which he had so heartily won, but it was a godsend after what they had suffered. I can assure the friends of those who are gone that they were comforted in their last moments by the chaplain and nurses, and were given proper Christian burial as soldiers who had fought the good fight and had fallen in glory. The brave nurses were like mothers with young children, and deserve the highest praise for what they did for us. And now, through God's help, I am getting on all right, and awaiting orders for the front again, to do a bit more for king and country, and to shame the slackers. End of chapter 8